there's a, a saying, don't be a tall poppy. Has anybody heard this saying before? Maybe if you've lived overseas, it's a saying that is particularly popular in Australia. We don't have many poppies around here, and so uh, let me translate a little bit. Uh, poppies grow in bunches. Like there's a field of these. I mean, think Wizard of Oz, right? Okay. There's fields of poppies, and what you see is this beautiful uniformity. And so to not be a tall poppy is this idea that when you see one poppy that's taller than the rest, it kind of throws off the whole picture. And so the whole idea is when you see that poppy, what you want to do is cut it off so that it all looks uniform. And so when people uh, say this phrase, don't be a tall poppy, what they're saying is don't push against the cultural norms. Look, be like everybody else because there's this idea that goodness, you're weird, right? And, you know, and every once in a while, and whether or not this is a phrase we use in our culture, we certainly have felt like tall poppies. Uh, maybe you and your life have been bullied at one time or another. Maybe you've even been ridiculed for your faith and you feel like a tall poppy. And I think increasingly in our world, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to feel like this tall poppy. And, and it's challenging because and nobody wants to feel like the pressure to cut you off so that you're uniform with everybody. No one, deep in our psyche is this whole sense of, I don't want to be that way, I just want to fit in. And deep in our psyche is the fear of being pushed out from the crowd. But again, to be a follower of Jesus today increasingly is to be different than the world. Because the world is moving in ways that's very different from Jesus. Now, it's always been this way. Always. But in our culture, especially as we celebrate Independence Day, we look at this and, you know, even 10, five years ago, things are moving away from Christian values. And so the good news, though, is the scriptures offer us guidance. And guidance on how do we now live? How do we live in a context? How do I raise a family in a context where the world seems to be going one way and God's calling me to go in a different way? This is not the first time in the history of God's people that we are called to live counter to the way that the culture seems to be going. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at the book of Daniel. I don't know if you've really read this book in a while, but typically we look at the book of Daniel as these stories we've told our children. You know, stories about uh, 90-foot idols and the lion's den. But actually, the deeper message in this book is for God's people to help us to know how do we live faithfully in a world that is absolutely counter to our faith. Now, of course, it's not all of the world, but how do, we, how do we live faithfully in a time where it feels more and more that we are that tall poppy, that we do stand out? And so near the, by the end of this six weeks, you're gonna be better equipped to understand not only what it means to live faithfully, but how, how to live faithfully. And so let's pray 
as we begin this series together, that that's exactly what God does for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that you're a God who has our best interest in mind always and that you've shown us how to live in a world that sometimes seems very much to not be going the direction that is in our best interest. Help us to live faithful lives for you. We just ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning. We pray this, Father, through Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. All right, so if we are to live lives that are faithful, that we're in the world, we're not of the world, counter to a culture that often is moving in a direction that's not of Jesus, what's the first thing that we need to do? The first thing that we need to do is we need to personally resolve that you and I take a stand. That we personally take a stand to say, this is who I am. This is what I am going to do. And so there's the big idea for this morning. And if you have your Bible with you, we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 1. I'd highly encourage you to pull out your Bible with me and follow along because we're going to go through the whole chapter together. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. As you're turning there, hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, let's just pause right there. So if we're to take a stand personally within the context of this culture, the first thing that we need to do if we're going to take the stand is this. We have to recognize that no matter what it looks like, God's in charge. We just cannot forget this is so essential. God is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. He had tried to invade and take over Judah uh, two other times. The third time, he's successful. The armies of Babylon roll in and they take away the sacred items out of the temple of God. Not only that, they kidnap the royalty and the leaders in the community and half the population and they march them to Babylon, which is modern day Iraq. They take the whole of the people and they move them in there. And so all of a sudden, you've got people who are, I don't speak this language, I'm not in my home, I'm being mistreated as a slave, and I'm in a context of people who worship foreign gods. How in the world am I to live faithfully in this context being God's people? It absolutely is jarring, right? Because the whole of this is God actually permitted this to happen. Here, let me, let me show you this verse. In verse two, it says here, I've highlighted it a bit. It's the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And it becomes even more clear in Jeremiah 29, verse four. Let's take a look at it. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You say, what are you talking about? It was Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> Do you really think that anything that happens in this world could happen without God allowing it to happen? No way. No way. God is still in charge. So then, okay, the obvious question is, so wait a minute. I thought God was a covenant God who protected his people and provided for his people. Yes. Yes, that's exactly who God is. But here's what happened over time. Over time, God continued to send prophets to Israel and said, come back, you're not being faithful. He sent another prophet. Please come back, you're not listening. This went on for centuries. Finally, God says to a people who say repeatedly to God, not thy will be done, but my will be done. God, in his discipline, finally relents and says, fine, fine. If you want thy will to be done, go. He removes his protection. Nebuchadnezzar comes in. But what's important for our discussion this morning is to recognize who is in charge. It's still God. God is the one who allowed this to happen. Now, why? Why is this so important for us? You can't go a day, right, where you pick up the paper and you go, what is this? My goodness, when it looks like evil is overcoming good, when it looks like where's God to be found in all of this, don't forget, God is still in charge. Now, I don't know why sometimes God permits these things to happen. We know in this context why God did, but we don't always know here. But it's important to remember that God is in charge. And here's what this will do. If you know that God is in charge, this will reorient your thinking and the whole of your life. You see, because if God is in charge, even when things are falling apart, it gives me a reference point and a place to stand and even a place to orient the whole of my life. Rick Warren. Uh, founder and pastor of Saddleback Church. He's being interviewed by CNN, uh, Piers Morgan. Uh, asks him, can you see a time when not just you, but other Christian preachers and indeed the Catholic Church and others say, equality means everyone has the right to get married, gay or straight. Okay, so he puts Warren on the spot. Warren comes back with what is a brilliant answer. He says this, I fear the disapproval of God more than I fear your disapproval or the disapproval of society. Do you see, when you realize God is the one who's in charge, it doesn't matter ultimately where the rest of the world is going. It's absolutely the most important thing to say that God is the one. It's what he says truth is. It's what he says reality is. And he's in charge. Once we start from that position, it begins to reorient my thoughts, my actions, my family, my community. But recognizing that God is in charge is the first place to start. That's where, if we're going to take a stand, the first thing we must recognize. Then, let's keep going with the passage. Daniel chapter 
1 verse 3. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. And the king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. The next step in taking a stand today, countering the culture, is to remember your name. And what I mean by that is to embrace your identity in Christ. So typically, we know these three friends of Daniel as Shadrach, Okay, I want you to forget you ever heard that, okay? Okay, God bless Veggie Tales, Shaq, Rack, and Benny, right, okay? <sighs> if you're a parent, I love, thank you, Veggie Tales, for helping my kids have an appreciation of Scripture. But here, I want you to realize, if those men were here this morning, and they found out that the church remembered them by their Babylonian names, not their real names, they'd be horrified. Here's why. Okay, here, take a look at this. Shadrach means under the command of Aku, the moon god. Meshach means who is like Aku, the moon god. Abednego, slave of the god Nabu. That's not who they were. You see, um, a lot of you are parents, and I don't, I'm going to say something, and I don't mean to critique okay, what, what we've done, but for years when we would name children, we... Uh, before the church was established, they would bring kids in, and when they were baptized, they would give them a new name. Why? Because no longer should you be Shadrach. You should be known by a Christian name. And so if you have children, or are going to have future children, please consider the idea of naming them in such a way that it gives them an identity that says, this is who you are. In my own family, my daughter, her name is Evangeline. And we named her that because she was such good news. And we keep telling her, honey, you reflect the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. My son is named Beckett. If you know Thomas of Beckett, he stood strong against the king and even against the government and said, here I stand, who was literally martyred in front of the whole of the church on the altar. And we want my son to be strong before the Lord to stand up in similar ways. Now, you know, a name is just a name. But is it like Shakespeare? You know, that a rose would swell, you know, what's the phrase? Uh, smell the same and be as sweet in any other. Well, this is really important. I just came from a church where we had many Chinese immigrants. And those immigrants would take an English name because it was much easier to pronounce 
uh, for, for people here in America. That's not what's going on here. What's going on is they are trying to change their identity because here, let's take a look what their names really mean. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael is who is like Elohim, what is a translation for God. And Azariah is Yahweh has helped. And so by calling them these Babylonian names, they're trying to change their identity. They're trying to make them into something else. They're trying to make them like the world. People. There may not be a culture out there that's saying, I'm going to give your kids different names. But really, the pressure of the culture doesn't have to change their name to give them a different identity. But more than ever, we must embrace our identity as children of the Father who through our baptism have received a new family identity. And it's into that name and that identity that we must embrace. So again, here, Romans 12 verse 2 says this, and I love J.B. Phillips' translation, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. See, see, you're not supposed to be squeezed into the shape of the world. You're supposed to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ. You see? Don't, there's something beautiful about Jesus that we want ourselves and others to become. But the world doesn't always encourage that. In fact, more often than not, it pushes us to not be that. You know, we have this, we have this myth in our culture, right? Uh, that if I hop on a motorcycle and I drive west and I climb up a mountain in Colorado, it's somewhere in isolation I'm going to find out who I am. Uh, am I wrong? Okay, like Steve McQueen, okay, James Dean. Okay, I'm gonna... That's more of an eastern thought than it is a scriptural thought. You see, what the scripture says, you want to know where you find out who you are? You find out who you are in this body. It's this body where you come together with your family and they tell you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget who you are. Luther put it this way, don't forget your baptism. You see, because in your baptism, you are given a new name, a new family, a new identity. Don't forget who you are. And we need to come together and be reminded of this continuously because there's a drug in the culture that we need to come in here and get sober from. We have to come back in here and continually hear the word of the Father that says, I love you, you are my children, don't forget who you are. And so one of the most important things that you and I can do to take a stand in the world today is simply come to church, to be regular attendees here in church. I was telling uh, a few people, it's now been, I'll, I'll talk more about this next week, but it's now been five months since I've been back home. Things have changed here. And, and not a lot of them, uh, For the, it, I'm glad we've got better restaurants. Um, <laughs> I'm glad we've got better browns. Uh, but look, not everything spiritually has gone for the good. Um, it would have been unthinkable a few years ago to schedule sports on a Sunday morning. I grew up in this town where Wednesdays were reserved for youth group and the school didn't put anything on those days because everyone knew we wanted our children to be shaped spiritually well. It just changed. 
And so more than ever, it's important for us to gather, to be regular for our children, for us to hear the word of God so that we don't forget who we are. That, after we recognize God's in charge, then remember your name. Remember your name. All right, so let's see how Daniel and his friends respond to the pressures of the Babylonians. Let's keep going. But Daniel reserved, uh, resolved, remember that word resolved, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, note, this is the Hebrew. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants accordingly to see what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. I said, take attention to verse eight. The next step after you recognize God's in charge, after you remember your name, is this, resolve. Live with Resolve, because at one point, if you decide to take a stand in your life that I'm a follower of Jesus, sooner or later, it's gonna be something that you've gotta make a decision. There's gonna, something's gonna come down the pike where you're gonna to have to say, what am I gonna do with this? And the thing that we all must do then is live with resolve. Okay, so these Jewish boys, and they are boys, they are taken from their families. It's horrible, right? Not only are you a slave in Babylon, but then they take you out of your family and they take you to go into the gifted program in the Babylonian school. They're in the program to, to become leaders in Babylon, okay? Like if somehow if we raise up these other royal children and they're gonna be our ambassadors, maybe the rest of the Israelites will follow them. You see, what's happening here is huge. And what do they do? They say, thank you. We're not going to drink the wine. We're not going to eat the meat. Well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal was that that meat and that wine, they knew had been offered to idols that had been placed before the Babylonian gods, Aku and Nabu, okay, and then given to them. But not only that, the meat wasn't kosher. Okay, and if you know anything about the dietary laws out of the Old Testament, this was a big deal for the Israelites. And so these boys decide, we're not gonna eat this, just give us vegetables. It's a huge risk, huge risk. Because by doing this, then the whole of this, they, they, could, they could lose their lives over this. The, the person who is watching over them says, if I do this, I, I could get killed as well as you. And they said, fine, see, see what happens when we do. 
See what happens, see what God does. And they live with resolve. Now what amazes me about this, how old do you think they were? I mean, we don't know for sure, but it says they're youths. So at most, they're teenagers. Having worked with teenagers for over 12 years of my life. Okay, this is astonishing. Okay, astonishing that you got teenagers who are gonna go in and they're given special treatment, special food, and they say no. Okay, let me talk to the parents and grandparents in particular. Think about the training that went into the lives of these boys for them to not only recognize the sin, but then to say together, no thank you. That, under the pressure of potentially losing their life. Think of the training that must have happened. I'm amazed at this because they, they chose. And here's the biggest part, and here's one that I want to press a bit. Who would have known? Who would have known, right? It's not like they're being marched out in front of people and saying, eat the meat in front of all the rest of the Israelites. Nope, they're doing it in private. No one will ever know. People, the temptation for all of us, particularly in the church, is this, no one will know. No one will know if you somehow compromise in your life and you don't live with resolve. You know who knows? God knows. God knows and God sees. And that's exactly what happened with these young men. Now, don't, don't think for a moment that the vegetables were quite as appealing as the meat and the, and the wine. No way, man, okay? And yours may not be meat and wine, but it's something in the world that's just as tasty, just as compromising. Who are you when no one's looking? I was reflecting on this passage and I was thinking personally, if my kids were ever taken away and put in the equivalent of a Babylonian school, would they stand up? Would they know the difference between right and wrong? Would they choose the right, even at the risk of their life? Wow. And I think that gives us a real challenge for those of us who are both grandparents and parents and Sunday school teachers to help our kids to know what's right and wrong and to be able to stand and to be able to explain this is why. You know, in my house growing up, we had this whole thing. Mom, can I do this? Honey, we don't do that in our family. That's not who we are. I think I told you before, in California, our neighbors had a statue of Buddha. Uh, they're Hindu. Uh, they were actually a little confused. But... Uh, <laughs> Nonetheless, it was confusing to my son as well. And he said, Daddy, why do they, and we, we'd been reading these stories, why do they have false gods in their front yard? I said, son, don't tell them that, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, don't tell them that in that way. But it's a great question. Son, that's not who we are. You see, see we follow Jesus. And we, this is the conversation we've got to have with our families, with our kids, because it may not be as blatant as a statue in the front yard when it comes up for them. But to take 
resolve and say, this is who we are. This is who our family is going to be. This is who our church is going to be because it's God who is still in charge. And here we make a stand with resolve. All right, so let's see what happens in their lives when they take this stand. Picking up at verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Once you recognize that God's in charge, you remember your name, and you live with resolve, the final step here, let's put it up, is to trust God for the results. Trust him for the results. So here, after 10 days, what happens? Well, they line the boys up, and it turns out they are better nourished and they look better than all the other ones. Now, parents, you're looking at me going, please, pastor, tell my kids to eat their vegetables. Okay, that, that's, tr that's a good thing, kids. Okay, but that's not what this passage is saying. Do you think that they're healthier because they went vegetarian? No, they're healthier because God honored their decision. Okay, this was a work of the Holy Spirit in their lives in ways that honored their decision. They didn't know that God was going to do this. They resolved that whether God moves or not, we would rather die at the hands of the Babylonians than compromise our identity. And God honors their decision. He protected them, he blessed them, and he promoted them through the ranks. So one of the biggest lies straight from the pit of hell, is if you make a sacrifice for God, it's not going to matter. It really won't. And you know, particularly, I'm going to speak again to parents. <laughs> now that I got little ones myself, that temptation to put your kids in the gifted program, to get them in the best schools, you know, there's something beautiful about wanting our kids to become everything they're supposed to be. But if it compromises their spiritual integrity of who they're supposed to be in Christ, oh, let's be careful there. You see, we got to be careful because we want to make sure that the first thing that we do is make them to be what God wants for them. So one of the biggest lies is that somehow if I have them worldly success, well, then they'll add this other piece on. God is their success. God is the one who will ultimately bring them into his success. And so, let me turn this around, though, and ask, okay, so where? Where are you tempted to eat the meat 
and drink the wine of the world. Where, where is it that you're struggling with this? And if we go back and we look at each one of these, right? Do you struggle today thinking, is God, is there really a God? You know, I mean, I look at this world and I'm not sure that God, maybe he's like this deist God. He's, God is in charge. You need to pray if this is what you struggle with to say, God, give me, give me faith. Help me to trust you, perhaps with my anxiety. How about this? Maybe you're struggling with remembering your name, remembering your identity. You, you've got, you know, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Well, today, ask God to help you to live out what it is that he wants you to be. Or maybe it's simply, well, I'm kind of doing good here, but I'm not really good there. Where's that one place that maybe even right now, God's knocking on your heart saying, you know, you know, you got to live here with resolve. Or finally, maybe you're doing this and you're going, God, where are you? <laughs> you know, I'm making these sacrifices. I don't see anything from it. Maybe you just need to trust God. And the reason we have these in, this passage in Scripture is to absolutely show us God has not forgotten you. God is with you. He is here. He is in charge. Well, and one of the things that I need uh, to say is if Daniel and his friends were here, they would tell you today, it's worth it. It's worth it. And I think one of the things that those of us who have followed Christ for a while to people who are younger is we need to speak into their lives and we need to say, you know what, son? You know what, my daughter? It's worth it. Don't believe the lie that it's not. Stand strong, even under the pressure. It's worth it. Taking a stand for God is always worth it. What I don't want to imply, though, is that somehow, if you take a stand for God, that he is going to honor you in such a way that he's going to promote you and bless you and give you a Cadillac. Okay? There are people in the church who will say this. It's wrong. And how do I know this? Because Jesus Christ recognized throughout his whole life that God is in charge. His father is in charge. Jesus absolutely never forgot his identity and lived into his identity. Jesus lived with resolve. I will not compromise who I am. I have a mission of the Father. And he trusted God for results. And on the day that he pulls into Jerusalem, they hail him as king. But by the end of the week, they yelled, crucify him. When we come to this table, we got to recognize that perhaps there are times in your life where you'll take a stand and you'll wonder, is God going to honor me in this? Let me remind you, Jesus Christ was crucified. But three days later, the Father raised him from the dead. Three days later, the Father then raised him from the dead. And now he is seated in the heavenly places. He has been honored above all. And as you and I seek to be like Jesus in this world... Remember this picture. Remember the bread broken. 
Jesus' body broken for you. Remember the cup poured out, his blood shed for you. And if God honored Jesus Christ in his resolve to live for the Father and to live on our behalf, he will honor you as well. As we come to this table together with a new resolve through the Holy Spirit, let's pray that God pours out his power upon us anew so that we can be his faithful church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this table is one that you have invited us to. You invite those of us who have been faithful, those of us who have not been as faithful. We thank you that you're the God who forgives. We thank you that on the cross, you paid for our sin and you made it possible for us to come by grace. Lord, for those of us who know all too well that we have lived compromised lives, we thank you for your grace. It's a costly grace. It cost the life of your son. And so we don't take it lightly, Lord. And it's out of that picture of your love that motivates us all the more to want to serve you and to love you with our whole hearts. So help us, Lord, to claim your grace and come to this communion table and see your love poured out for us. The body of Jesus broken, the blood of Jesus poured and spilled for us. And help us to trust, Lord, whether in this life or the next, that you are the one who will honor us, just as you did Jesus. We ask this through him. Amen.